Well, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're talking today about Christian leadership in the workplace. Christian leadership in the workplace. I have been so amazed as we've been studying the book of Ephesians, looking at the wealth and work of God in Christ, how comprehensive that wisdom is. That there's almost nothing that is not addressed or goes unaddressed by the perfect gaze of our Lord to give us instruction and comfort and help in how we're to please Him and serve Him. Just a little bit of a contextual background that you all have been familiar with. If you've been around, if, if you're new or you haven't been here for very long, we're studying the book of Ephesians verse by verse. It's Paul's letter to a church that was at ancient Ephesus. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, and masters and slaves. And it's amazing how the gospel unites all those people and has specific messages for how each of us are to please the Lord in our, our state. Specifically, as he says in chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, influenced by the Spirit, moved along by the Spirit. As you do that, you're gonna, there, will be con- there will be consequences. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs will come out. We'll be thankful with each other and encourage each other, submissive to one another. Wives will follow their husbands. Husbands will shepherd and love and lead their wives. Children will obey their parents. Parents will give direction and, and proper attention and instruction to their children. Then he moves into slaves and masters, which, as we've said, is so genius and brilliant because the two areas of our life, the two places we spend most of our life are at home and at work. And this is exactly where Paul targets the primary application of our walking with the Spirit. Well, we've done the family part of it with wives and husbands and children and fathers and parents. Now we come to the work part of it. Last week, we looked at slaves and how they were to obey their masters. This was the not to be confused with slavery in the old American South. This was just how people worked. They were indentured uh, servants and worked for, for different supervisors and bosses, and they were well cared for and well uh, fed. And it was, a, it was a, not necessarily always a bad thing, but there were bad actors in the slavery, not trade so much as exercise of Roman authority and government. So he talks to the slaves in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 6. And then in verse 9, he changes everything. Let's read that together. Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and with trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. One of the hottest subjects in nonfiction literature is the subject of leadership. 
on any given day, on any given time, almost every given week of the year, just look at the top 10 or top 20 books on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction publications, and you will certainly find a book on leadership. I did some research yesterday so that my research would be as current as possible. I checked, and there was a book on leadership in the top 10. One study I read recently suggested that over 1,300 titles a year are published with the word leadership in the title or the subtitle. Another Google Google search found that leadership books outnumber good leaders 10 to 1. It's estimated that each year there are 15,000 books on some element of leadership that are published. And if you search Amazon for leadership books right now, or at least yesterday, you'll get 60,000 plus results. It's a lot of books on leadership. You ever ask why? Is there such a dearth of leadership that people need this instruction? Or do people feel like they need such help that people write books to fill that void? Then there comes the endless debate about the difference between leadership and management. You ever been in a part of that debate? They're leaders and they're managers. Well, listen, I've come to believe that there's a significant overlap between leadership and management, but at their core, managers are those who faithfully take care of what must be done, and leaders are typically those who think about what could be done. They're visionaries. A lot of overlap with both of those. That's for another study and another time. Paul here is addressing leadership. He's addressing management. He's addressing oversight and supervision. He's finishing up his section on the household instructions with what's going on at home and what's going on at work by addressing the subject of slaves and masters. And as we've noted, those are the two places we spend most of our time, home and work. makes sense that Paul would address those two areas where we outwork our following of God and our application of being moved along and influenced by the Spirit of God. However, he doesn't focus on giving us a how-to manual. He focuses on who to be in this little manual. He points to our hearts. He points to our character. He points to the heart and character of those who are following, those who are supervised, and also those who are supervisors, the bosses and the employees, the employees and the employers, the slaves and the masters in his context. Character matters. Character matters a lot. We live in a world that either refuses to acknowledge that or whispers a veiled, no, character doesn't matter. What we know, what we have... What we can do have become the watermarks in a flood of confusion concerning leadership. In fact, many are playing dodgeball with integrity, calling integrity a negotiable feature of leadership. Listen, how many times have you said, or maybe heard it said, that you like a certain politician's policies, but you don't like his character? The Bible makes no such bifurcation between character and competency. 
Our Lord emphatically stated in Luke 6.40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. In other words, the people will reflect the character of the leadership they have been under. That's a big deal, spiritually and vocationally. There are many places in the Bible we could turn to understand the principles of leadership that are divine, that are, that are baked into God's constitution for how we lead. We could learn about leadership by stories. There's great leaders. There are great leaders. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Joseph, Peter, Paul, amazing leaders. There are stories of bad leaders like Saul or Ahab. And then there's the tweeners. <laughs> there's leaders who are sometimes good and sometimes bad. David, his son Solomon. Any given chapter, you can say amazing leadership and turn to another chapter and you can say such a failure. But perhaps the one place where we see God literally define his expectations for a leader is in his outline of the future kings of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. Would you turn there for just a moment? This is an amazing text for a lot of reasons, but I find it interesting that for four and a half books, God has said, you don't need a king. Why? I'm your king. You don't need to be like the other nations. Why? Because you're not like the other nations. You should follow me, and you don't need an earthly king. And yet, and yet, and yet, you come to Deuteronomy 17 as Moses stands on the plains of Moab, giving the second giving of the law to the people who needed it because the people who had heard it, their parents had died off in the wilderness because of the golden calf. And in Deuteronomy 17, he says this, just shocking, shocking. This would have been a, such a, a moment of no air in the room when he said this. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land of the Lord your, the Lord your God gives you, that is such a sad moment. He doesn't say when we go. Why? Because the Lord said, Moses, you're not going. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Between verse 14, there's not a statement that says, that's stupid. But it should have been. God could have easily said that. He'd said that for four and a half books. You don't need a king, I'm your king. He says, look, I get it. You're going to want a king, so I'll give you one. And then he outlines the character of the king he wants them to have, a leader. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. What a statement. One from among your countrymen, not the one who's the tallest or the best looking. That happened. One from among your countrymen, no pagan kings, set as the king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman, not a Jew. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Put his confidence in the greatest military machine, a horse, of the day. 
nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, going back to the military giant of Egypt. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will be turn, will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold or for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books. Imagine how lengthy that scroll would be. On a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he shall learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful and by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right, to the left, that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, without doing a deep dive into this passage, I hope some things jumped off the page into your heart when you heard that read. A leader must embody trust in God for his provision and protection. A leader must involve solitary, a solitary marriage that serves as an example for followers. You say, where do we see that illustrated so poorly? 1 Kings 11, Solomon had a thousand women in his life. And you know what the text says? 1 Kings 11, 1 to 3, they turned his heart away from God. Not being given to money and materialism. Intimate and personal familiarity with, familiarity with the scriptures. So incredible. The king had to take a scroll and a quill in front of the Levitical priest and write a copy of Genesis through Deuteronomy. The whole thing. Why? Because he could never say ever again, oh, I didn't know the law said that. And the priest would say, you wrote it. Yes, you did. Observable obedience to God's word was to be his character and humility among those he leads. I don't know of a better description of leadership in God's word, and we shouldn't expect to find one because it's God's, God's expectations for the leader of his people. All to say, God cares about leadership. God understands leadership. God gives clear instruction and God gives clear help for leaders. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, for many of you, for many of us, we live in a world and our occupations and our vocations where we both report to some people and some people report to us. Most people have that kind of relationship where there's people who supervise them and people they supervise. They're both a boss and they're both a supervised Last week, we heard Paul address slaves or those who are in submission to a supervisor, submission to a boss. And then, then in verse 9, something happens. He turns to the masters or the bosses or the supervisors to show what a spirit-filled leader, a spirit-filled supervisor, a spirit-filled boss looks like and acts like and is like. dive into this together. In this one simple verse, Paul gives two tenets of Christian leadership in the workplace. Two tenets, two aspirations, two principles, two goals, two tenets of Christian leadership in the workplace. I know many of you are supervisors or bosses at some level. 
This text is for you. How should we apply a spirit-filled life at the workplace as a supervisor or as a boss? Number one, temper your leadership to those who lead, you lead. Temper, measure, temper your leadership to those you lead. After addressing slaves in verses 5 to 8, Paul now turns to their masters. Don't let it be lost on you what a big deal this is. It would have made perfect sense for Paul to tell slaves to behave, obey your master, fall in line, do what you're supposed to do. But remember the context we've been looking at in Ephesians for five and a half chapters. It involved Gentiles and Jews, rich and poor, slaves and free, slaves and masters, children and adults, parents and their children. So you can see, that. imagine the first time this book was ever read. And the masters are sitting there and Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. And they kind of grab their tunic and, yeah, all right. I like this. This Paul dude's good. He's got stuff to say. I'm so happy for this. This is going to help my, my business. This is wonderful. Then comes verse 9. And masters. And you can be sure that in that little house church, that every eye of every slave turned to their master, their boss. This was culturally so counterintuitive that Paul would talk to masters and talk to them in front of their slaves. The first words of verse 9 would have taken the air completely out of room. Masters, you masters, I have a word for you. Listen to God's word to you. He calls out the masters in front of the slaves and tells them how to be good leaders. How should bosses, supervisors, masters treat those they lead? Let's look at it then together. First of all, with wholehearted care, letter A. With wholehearted care. And masters, do the same things to them. We have to ask some pronoun questions. What are the same things and who are them? Well, first of all, them are the slaves, the same things we have to identify. And he's not talking about slaves obey your masters. Now, masters, you obey your slaves. That would completely disrupt society. He's not talking about the obedience and the supervisor inversion. He's talking about heart. Remember, Paul has just told the slaves to obey their masters with detailed attitudes. Slaves were to be wholehearted in their service. They were to work with integrity, dedication, good attitudes, goodwill. They were to be kind toward their masters. Look back at verse 5. Slave, be, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. This, this is only going to happen during this life with fear and with trembling, not to them, but before the Lord and obeying Him in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Slaves, you should obey your masters as you would obey the Lord himself. 
He'll say that again in a moment. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, just checking boxes, doing good work when people are watching you alone, but as slaves, not of the master, but of who? Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. It's a heart issue. With good service, render as to the Lord for the third time. You do this as you would do to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. you got to obey them, but you got to obey them from your heart. Can we say it well, the way we said it last week? You obey with a good attitude. It's the same thing we tell our four-year-olds. You don't just obey your boss, your supervisor. You obey with a good attitude, with the right attitude, with a submissive attitude. Doesn't mean you don't appeal. Doesn't mean you can't appeal. But even that's done with a right and a holy attitude. Paul says now to the bosses, to the masters, do the same things to them. What are the same things? Well, we get a hint about that from Colossians, the parallel passage, Colossians 4.1. Paul says, Masters, grant your slaves, to your slaves, justice and fairness. It's an attitude. Have a good attitude toward those you obey as your supervisor. Supervisors, have a right, good, holy attitude toward those you lead. Just as slaves are to honor and obey their masters with wholehearted devotion, so masters or bosses or supervisors are to treat those they lead and employ with kindness and dignity and respect. This phrase, do the same things to them, is the great leveler of spiritual obedience. No one is above the call to treat others with kindness and dignity and respect. Now, can we have just a moment here? <laughs> my guess, my guess is that all of us have probably worked for a boss who was a jerk. Sorry. Haven't you? Peter talks about this. And he gives us some categories, supervisors, to think about. He says... 1 Peter 2.18, servants, slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those, now watch this, who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. He says, be a good employee no matter what your boss is like, but he also gives us some instructions for those of us who are in supervisor roles that you can either be a good and gentle boss or you can be unreasonable. Those of you who have supervisory roles, what, what are the people who follow you say about you? Are you the good and gentle dude or dudette? Or are you the unreasonable jerk? Good and reasonable? Unreasonable? Good and gentle? If you're a boss, if you're a supervisor, if you're a leader or manager of others, are you good and gentle or can you be unreasonable? Now, before you say, well, I mean, it kind of depends on what, well, keep going. Next. Without intimidating threats. Here's the test. <laughs> Without intimidating threats. And give up threatening. Such an interesting tense 
of the Greek verb here, the Greek participle. He doesn't say, don't threaten them. He says, stop doing it. What does that mean? They're already doing it. All leadership carries with it many temptations to sin, and Paul identifies one of the most common and most damaging temptations in his command for masters not to threaten those they lead, to stop threatening them. Now, this does not mean that a boss never gives undesired directions. Leaders must make hard decisions, and they're not always the most fun things to follow. I've been in supervisory roles, and sometimes you have to encourage people to do things that they don't want to do that are unpleasant. That doesn't take this out of play. It's a hard attitude of how you do it. Tenor and tone of these instructions is important to God. We're not threatening. And it doesn't mean there aren't threats involved. I remember when I worked for UPS when I was in, in college, uh, 4 a.m. to 8 every morning, we would load, uh, unload uh, uh, trucks that would come in. And if we damaged boxes, there were consequences. And there was a threat. If you do this, this will happen. That's not the kind of threat that this is talking about. This is talking about being manipulative and intimidating just so they'll obey you. Give up threatening. Listen to these insights from Dr. Honer. Does Paul's exhortative pre- exhortation rather prevent a master from threatening his slaves with punishment if they did wrong? He says, if that were the case, slaves could refuse to work. It's more likely that Paul was enjoining Christian masters to treat their slaves with integrity and goodwill as he had asked the slaves to behave toward their bosses. No doubt many times idle threats were made merely to engender fear in order to make slaves work harder. Paul urged them not to impose threats in the same way non-Christian masters might do. In other words, end quote, in other words, A boss's relationship with his or her heavenly master is going to inform and transform his relationship with those he or she leads at work, which is where he takes us next. Second tenet of Christian leadership in the workplace is this. Consider your leadership before the one who leads you. By before, I mean in front of the one who's watching you. Consider your leadership before the one who leads you. Why? Letter A, because we share the same master. One of my favorite words in the New Testament is the, the, the verbal, the participle from Oeda called edotes, knowing, knowing. What we know informs how we think, which controls how we feel. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know, right? What do I know? Paul uses this with such strategy, knowing. We understand something. We know something. We see the backside of the quilt. We know what God is doing above the clouds and in heaven, knowing that both their master, the slaves, and your master, master, is in heaven. Paul makes the critical move from the earthly masters to our common heavenly Lord and master. And the rub is that an earthly boss is to please the Lord by the way he treats his slave or employee. A supervisor is to please the Lord by the way that we are leading. 
The reason is theological. Our God is in heaven. Our God cares about both master and slave. Our God cares about employee and employer. Both are of equal importance to God. God doesn't look at bosses and say they're more important than the workers. He looks at character. He looks at the heart. Back to our parallel passage in Colossians, Colossians 4.1. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing, same word, that you also, you too, have a master in heaven. You're not the top of the food chain. You have a boss too. Specifically, Paul is telling us that God's watching and he knows, and he sees, and he cares. He pounds the gavel on the theological truth that we both, slaves and masters, employees and employers, supervisors and the supervised, have a, who, are, who know the Lord, have a common master, a common boss, a common supervisor, a common Lord in heaven. And guess what? Let her be. We're all going to give him an account. Because we share a common accounting. First, the governing verbal for this final phrase is still the participle knowing. You should know this. You should bank this away. You should act on this. This should have a difference in the way you think and how you act. Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are opened and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No one will escape that judgment. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He says... There's no partiality with the one who's going to judge. No partiality. God is not partial. In other words, he looks past the position to the person. He looks at the heart. It's what you're like, not the position you hold. Oh, there's such easy assumptions to make wrongly about the coming judgment before God. Oh, God grades on the curve. Or God gives a pass to the bosses. Or God gives a pass to those in authority. No, we all have the same judgment. These wrong thoughts are rooted in an assumption about God and His character, namely that He's partial. And at the core of that assumption is the conclusion that God is not fair. He's unfair. Our Bibles teach us that God is not capricious. God is not fickle. God is not... Prejudicial. God is not discriminatory. God is not impulsive or erratic. He's not unfair in his judgments. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality, nor does he take a bribe. Back to our parallel passage. Colossians 3.22, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on the earth, not with external service as 
those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, slave or free, master or supervised, whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Then in verse 25, he says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that he will receive without partiality. Paul told, the, Paul told the Colossians, you have a master in heaven. So, Christian employees, supervised, you are to work for your boss, for your supervisor, with fear, diligence, integrity, and a pleasant, good attitude. But Christian supervisors, Supervisors and bosses who are believers are to treat those that we lead with kindness, respect, understanding, and dignity without capricious threatening. Both sides should be a testimony of the working world or to the working world around us of our allegiance to Christ. So there's a lot of you who are bosses, supervisors at work. And as I said, mo- most of us have those relationships with people who oversee us and relationships with people that we, we supervise or oversee. If we put all this together, there are three takeaways that should apply to us as Christian leaders, okay? Three simple takeaways. They're all, they all start with C. Number one, competence. If you're a boss, if you're a supervisor, competence 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, that's including your job, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul told the slaves at Colossae to work for the Lord. That certainly would apply to masters as well. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You work hard, you work excellently, you work well, you don't waste time, you don't steal time, you're not lazy. You're a good boss, you're a good example. One of the most unreasonable things, features of, a, of an unreasonable boss is when they ask you to do things they're not willing to do or they ask you to do things they don't want to do. No, we're the example. We're competent in what we do. So if you're a supervisor and if you're a good boss, do it as to the Lord. Show those who follow you by example what good work looks like. Secondly, character. Not only competence, but character. This is the heart of Paul's message to slaves and masters. There's an accounting coming. God cares. Character matters. What is your heart attitude toward those you lead? What is it like? Remember Peter's categories? Are you good and gentle or are you unreasonable? Hard to follow. Unattractive in your leadership. What you're like and how you act are more important than, number one, that competence. And number three, competence, character. Number three, compassion. Compassion. You put all this together. Are you tender-hearted like the slaves are called to be to their masters? Are you tender-hearted and compassionate toward those who are 
called to lead you, called to follow you as the leader. Do you care about their burdens? Do you care about their workloads? Do you know about their workloads? Do you know what you've asked them to do and if it was reasonable or unreasonable? Do you know about their deadlines? This doesn't mean that we're not hard on those who follow because work is hard. Doesn't mean we make every job easy. It means we understand what is hard. It means we help. This was illustrated to me in such an amazing way when I was in seminary. My first semester, I took hermeneutics from Dr. Jim Roskup, one of my favorite professors I ever had. In fact, Dr. Roskup was, we had a special relationship. He, he also took a class on prayer from him, and it, it just rocked my world. Uh, he was the most faithful prayer, man of prayer I've, I've ever known. Um, he... Uh, when I met him that first semester, you know, you're going through the role, and he says, Richard Holland, that's me. I said, here. I said, Dr. Roscoe, I actually go by Rick. Okay, thanks, Rich. And for the next 30 years of our relationship, he called me Rich. I corrected him about 100 times, and it didn't matter. I was rich in his mind, and I was going to be okay to be that. I remember being at a shepherd's conference one year, and I, I saw him on the patio and he said, Rich, Rich, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine, Dr. Roscoe. It's actually Rick, but now it's fine, Dr. Roscoe. He says, I've been praying for your mom recently. She's still on my prayer list. How's your mom? I said, oh, Dr. Roscoe, she died about 12 years ago. He goes, oh, then I don't have to pray what I've been praying anymore. He was still praying. Dr. Roskup was a stickler on papers and tests. You didn't turn in anything late. I remember him saying with a smile, gentlemen, no preacher gets to show up on Sunday morning and say, I didn't have time to do my homework. I didn't have time to show up. Those people will expect you to have completed your assignment to give them a sermon. Therefore, part of our training is that you may never turn anything in late. And I remember his famous statement, the due date and the due time is not the last time, some, not the first time something's due, it's the last time something's due. And he meant it. I know this next story, not because of what he told me, but because of what my roommate, one of my uh, uh, roommates told me. Not roommates, classmates. He was married. His wife uh, had some kind of sickness. She was taken to the hospital one night, the night before one of our papers was due. And he, um, he came back late. He realized, I'm not going to finish my, my paper. So he called Dr. Roskup at home. This was before cell phones. And Dr. Roskup answered the phone, hello. And he says, Dr. Roskup, my wife was in the hospital. I, 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 I'm not asking for an excuse, but there's no way I'm going to finish my paper. And and he goes, well, how much do you have it done? He says, well, I actually have all the research done. I just haven't typed it out yet. Dr. Roskup said, I can't change the assignment time or due date, but I can be there in 30 minutes and I'll type your paper for you. And he came to this guy's apartment. His wife lay there on the couch sick and stayed there till three in the morning typing the paper that was due to himself 
for the student. That's compassion. That's caring. That's understanding. Solomon said, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God, keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Our God sees, he knows, he cares, he notices So, what kind of supervised man or woman are you and what kind of supervisor are you? Let me pray. Father, I want to be like Dr. Roscup, compassionate, a man of character, a man of competence, So many in our church are supervisors, bosses, masters. So many others are supervised. And there's a large swath of us who are both. People who report to us and people to whom we report. Father, we need your grace to know how to respond in those roles that you've given us. To bring glory to your son, to make much of the gospel... I'm so grateful that that great accounting that's coming for many of us has been accounted for because of the death of your son, the grace that you gave us for dying instead of us and dying in place of us and dying as a benefit to us on the cross and rising from the dead. Convict us, correct us, Encourage us and change us in our leadership. I'm so grateful that you care enough to teach us how to be better leaders. Show us a clear and a better way. Because of your word and for the glory of your son, we pray. Amen.